This is unstructured. Today we are with Jerry Williams, and she is retired from the FBI. Even cooler, she has a podcast, which is FBI Retired Case File Review, where she talks to other folks who are retired from the FBI. Now, if you guys are anything like me, your imaginations have to be completely lurid to say, oh my God, who have you talked to? What cases have you seen? What is going on? So let's start. How are you doing today, Jerry? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, I have a group called Unstructured as well. It's kind of tangentially with the podcast, but it's also friends. And I put out a call for questions. So of course I have to get a cheeky questions that come in. So we'll start off on a, a high note. <laughs> okay. Where's Jimmy Hoffa? Oh, I wish I knew. You know, I, I, we should say, you know, all the places he could be because I probably, he probably isn't together in one piece anywhere. Actually, on that note, I think I read something like they found where he was killed. Like in blood trails or, or whatever, like in the bottom of a basement somewhere, but. Yeah, he's probably uh, little bits of pieces all over the country or, or maybe just disintegrated in a big vat of acid. Uh, but our minds could take us uh, all over the place as to where Jimmy is. <laughs> poor Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, poor Jimmy. But then he kind of did get into bed with them. Maybe the wrong people. Yeah, I think so. All right. Now, seriously, though, you really didn't work in organized crime. I believe you worked in financial crime and fraud. Yeah. Things like that. I spent most of my career doing white-collar crime, economic uh, fraud, so advanced fee schemes, business-to-business -business telemarketing fraud, uh, Ponzi schemes. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I did, and it was fascinating. I can only imagine, and I'm curious, all these check cashing stores, Yes, is there an unsavory element tied with them? Uh, I don't know. I guess some of them possibly. I mean, anybody who will cash your check and claim... 10% or more of it is certainly not looking out for your best interest. That's Yeah, I guess that's an ethical question. I just didn't know because there seems to be so many of them that I don't know which ones seem shadier, them or mattress stores. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a, a wide comparison. Uh, well, I mean, have you ever driven around and say, how can there be four mattress stores, one on every corner? I mean, how often do we replace our mattress in our bedroom? Yeah. And the other question is, how many people go in those stores? I mean, when I buy a mattress, you know, I'm going to probably a furniture store or Macy's or you know somebody that I, I know and I trust. Uh, just a, a random mattress store kind of scares me. Exactly. And actually, I have gone in them and they're usually, I'm the only person or there might be another. Yeah, but then they tell you that this mattress is better than that mattress and this is, uh, you know, luxury and... And how do you know, you know, how do you know? Exactly. Now on, I guess more in your note, have, have you dealt with any, um, frauds that we should look out for like, uh, charities or, um, potentially religious groups or any, can you describe some of the, uh, yeah, well, I can talk about business to business charity fraud, because I think that may be one that a lot of people, uh, know about it. And, and that's when, you know, somebody calls you for a donation. And even if the organization is quasi um, legit, the charity is only going to get 
a very, very small percentage of your donation. So if you really care about a particular charity, then I would contact them directly and uh, provide them with their donation. And there's been, I guess, a couple of those, especially dealing with veterans, right? Yeah, absolutely. Veterans. And they also have the uh, police, you know, benevolent, you know, society calls you. And if your local police gets any of that money, it's, it's a very small percentage. So if you really care about your local police department, then you want to go ahead and give them your donation uh, directly. And they might have local fundraisers that they're putting on themselves and maybe attend those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing is advanced fee schemes are also very prevalent. And that's when you're looking for a loan. You know, maybe you want to create, uh, you know, a a new business and you need capital. And, you know, the you go to a bank and the bank will not give you a loan. But you have a loan broker who claims to have resources that, you know, he can give, a, get you a loan, a venture capitalist to, to help kick off your business. And so he promises you all of this stuff, but all you need to do is to pay his expenses in advance. And you make that. Oh my God. Yeah. You, you, you pay his expenses in his, in advance for him to, you know, do his best practices to secure your loan. And of course, then he doesn't do anything else. So if you've paid, you know, $5,000, $10,000 in advance and you get nothing. And the reason that you know it's a fraud is when you go in and he has no resources. He has no contacts or connections. He never had the ability to get you that loan. Well, that's fraud. Isn't that just a variation of the old con? Oh, yeah. They're all a variation of the old con. Yeah, the whole thing of um, I've got $500 in here. I need the $40 to go get in there. Or I've got this uh, suitcase with diamonds or whatever. Yeah, and it's an old con, but it must work because, you know, through the times, they keep using it and keep using it. I'm going to sound cruel, but I feel like people can be suckered by a con if they're greedy. Absolutely. And, you know... I'm plugging a book, <laughs> but my last, Please. yeah, my last crime novel is called Greedy Givers. And uh, the reason I, I called it that is because a lot of times when people do fall for scams, it's because they were trying to make money themselves, you know, so their greed kind of pops up and they're not thinking about the legitimacy of, of the offer. They're just thinking about the big bucks they're going to make. So in many cases, Unfortunately, you know, people fall for frauds because there is a little bit of greed, you know, in their hearts, too. Yeah. And I I hate to say, you know, blame the victim, but I do blame them a little. (laughs) I just I I know that's terrible, but it's like, okay, if I, I, I would feel I feel much sorrier for a victim of, say, Enron, where they just kept investing their wages, their money into their own company, which they felt hey, I'm working for this legitimate corporation and helping build it and being a part owner, that they, they I don't feel are guilty. I feel like they're just investing in the future for themselves and for their employer. Right. They're victims. They're absolutely yes. victims. But, you know, and, and many frauds, you know, are the, you know, the people that uh, participate in the fraud, you know, they know that there's, there's something strange going on here that it's not totally legit, but they're willing to take the risk because they believe there are going to be some huge financial rewards at the end. And uh, you know what they say? If it looks too good to be true, it's <laughs> too good to be true. Exactly. It's like bu- buying things that uh, fell off the truck. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but exactly. at the same time, you cry if you get something stolen from your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what what brought you into the FBI? I know you have a, a backstory, and I think you're spent some time in my neck of the woods even. Yes, I was. I My father uh, was in the Air Force for over 20 years, and he ended up retiring in Langley Air Force Base, which is right in Hampton where you are. And I uh, went to high school uh, in, Ham- in Hampton. Then I went away to college. And when I came back home, because we all come back home at least for a little while, I got a job as a probation officer in Newport News, Virginia, a juvenile probation officer. I had been a, uh, a psychology major and I worked that job and I loved that job, you know, working with young people. But I was a young person myself. I really was probably too young for that job. And I could see myself burning out really, really quickly. I'm sure you're, I imagine you didn't see the um, better parts of society. Now, you know, they were juveniles, but they were in the system because they committed serious crimes, uh, you know, robberies and assaults. And, you know, many of the girls were young prostitutes. Uh, they were doing drugs. And the thing about my caseload is I was really called an aftercare counselor where all of my kids had been sent away to group homes or reform schools. And it was my job to drive all over Virginia to visit them and sometimes take their parents with me because their parents didn't have transportation. And then when those kids were released from the system, I kept up with them, helping to make sure they get back into school or they got a job. So I had kids that had already, you know, had had some difficulty in adjusting in uh, in the community. And, you know, it was heartbreaking to have a kid return home. You think you got, they, you have them in a stable job at Burger King. And next thing mm-hmm. you know, they've gotten arrested and we're starting all over again. They're back in the system. And, and that happened many times. Uh, so I really wasn't looking for another job, but I saw this newsletter that had come out, you know, it was a women's networking newsletter. And it said that the FBI was looking for women and minorities. And I was like, hey, <laughs> yeah, that, that's me as an African-American female. You know, I'm a woman. I'm a minority. I had never even thought about the FBI because in my mind, you know, I still looked at the FBI as, you know, a white males. Hoover. Yeah, Hoover. So uh, I decided to give them a call. And the great thing about it is that the person who answered the phone, there's a job in the FBI called an applicant coordinator. And he's like the, the recruiter that helps process all the people for a particular division. And mm-hmm. the, Norfolk, the, the Norfolk division's applicant coordinator was Randy. And Randy really, really recruited me. We were on the phone for over an hour. I still have my notes from when I talked to him that I wrote everything really? down. Uh, I'm a, I, I have, I, I, I keep a lot of memorabilia. I think from moving around, we lived in 13 different places. I went to 13 different schools, you know, during, you know, before I was uh, 16. And so, you know, I, I kept a little bit of all of that by, you know, collecting memorabilia. So yeah, I still have, I still have a lot of, a lot of little uh, things that uh, remind me of the places I've been and the people I've met. But I, so I still have those notes and, and Randy really recruited me into the FBI. It wasn't as far fetched as an idea as you might think, because my roommate in college, 
was a, after she graduated, became a police officer in uh, the Baltimore Police Department. So I knew somebody, you know, a, a female really close to me who, you know, was in law enforcement. So, you know, I really thought, yeah, I'm going to try this. And I don't know what happened because usually the, the processing takes a while. But six months later, you know, I was walking into the FBI Academy thinking to myself, what have I done? <laughs> That's cool. And that actually was a question that came in from the group too. Um, why does someone choose the FBI over local or state law enforcement? Well, I mean, the biggest reason <laughs> would be, would be uh, finances because the salary for federal law enforcement is, uh, is pretty good. You know, when it comes to, yeah, I would say when I retired and, you know, I retired 10 years ago, so who knows what the salary is now. But when I retired, I was making $133,000 as an FBI Hmm. agent. And that was not in a uh, supervisory uh, position, you know, a supervisor or uh, an assistant special agent in charge or anybody in what we call the SES uh, positions, uh, senior management positions, you know, are making more than that. Are these GS positions? Yes. Mm -hmm. So an FBI agent, uh, at the top journeyman level is a GS 13 supervisors are GS 14s and they go on up. Mm, Okay. Well, I know that, yeah, when you get above GS 12, it starts to get up there. Yeah. And what the FBI get, what an FBI agent gets is what they called uncontrollable overtime, where they're going to assume that an FBI agent is going to work overtime, which we do. And instead of paying for all the overtime that we would work and not having any idea of finances and budgets, they give us that overtime on a regular basis as long as we work 50 hours a week. So every F- FBI agent is required to work at least 50 hours a week. Some of those weeks, of course, you know, when you're working all through the night or on the weekends, you're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and you're not getting a single bit more pay, but uh, it all works out at the end. Well, that's cool. And that actually brings me to another question. You had mentioned before um, I'd listened to an interview with you that being an agent is like running a small business. Absolutely. Very entrepreneurial in the sense that most agents have their own cases. So whether you're working really large cases and you only have two or three, or you're working smaller cases and you have 20 to 25 cases, those are your responsibility. Nobody is standing over your shoulder looking to see, you know, if you're working, you know, they have a file review scheduled every 90 days. And so when that 90 days is up, you'll bring your files into your supervisor's office. He'll go through them, call you back in and go through them. You know, how come you haven't done this? Or this is great what you've done there and how successful this looks or why don't you try that? But basically you make the decisions just like you do in a business on manpower. If you need extra help, you know, you're going to have to call in favors from your squad mates and on resources. You know, do you need to pay an informant? Do you need to buy some equipment? Uh, so all of those decisions are yours as a case agent. Nobody is, you know, standing, like I said, no one's standing over your shoulder watching you. You are expected to be uh, in control of your cases and make those important decisions. Well, that brought me to some questions when I was thinking about that, because I'm wondering, how do you prioritize? What decision is more important at which point? And if you have a, a case example, or you can even make one up, you know, how would you go about your day and say, 
okay, getting um, these interviews are more important than this. I need to do this first. How do you organize? Well, I think initially, I think you're absolutely right about interviews. And, you know, so initially, you're going to try to gather as much information as possible. Now, if it's a case that you want to keep covert, you know, you don't want anybody to know that you're investigating it, then you may not do interviews right off. But if it's something that everybody's aware of, and a, a lot of times in white collar crime cases, that what makes them different than other criminal cases is that you know what happened. You know, somebody's coming in and they're saying that, you know, I was bribed or they were saying that, you know, this is, uh, I was defrauded. So you know what happened and what you're trying to, to determine is if what happened was really a crime as, a, as opposed to uh, a bank robbery where you know it's a crime. You're just trying to figure mm-hmm. out who did it. But a lot of times you, in, in white collar, you know who did it and you know what was done. But now you got to prove that it actually was a crime, that it wasn't just a uh, uh, contract dispute, you know, that this was a fraud. You can you're looking for evidence to prove that this person told a lie or was deceptive in some way in order to gain something of value. I mean, that's basically Mm. what a fraud is. When you tell a lie or you're deceptive in order to gain something of value. And so you're looking for that. A lot of times it's talking to people and interviewing them. Many times it's going through documents, you know, going through boxes of papers and just looking at what was written, what was said, what was emailed, what was, you know, sent through the mail. Uh, And some people hate that. I absolutely loved it. It was like going through, uh, you know, a treasure trove looking for, you know, that, that, that little thing that's going to help you make your case. Really? I, I was actually told one time that if I'm ever called to federal jury duty, pray that it's not a financial fraud case. Uh, they're really because- exciting. Think about it. Just think about all the ways that a person can try to steal somebody else's money. You know, sure. don't, don't you want to watch that person? <laughs> don't you want to see what goes through his or her mind as they're, you know, trying to scheme and scam and, and take somebody's money? One of my favorite lines, and I don't know if I made this up or I stole it from somebody, but with a gun, you can steal hundreds. With a pen, you can steal millions. And oh, that's, sure. yeah, that's so true, you know? But it also makes me wonder, too, there are some slippery characters out there. And have you come across cases where you know that these people are are shady, but they managed to tow just enough in the gray area that you can't quite say it's criminal, sleazy as hell, but not not fully criminal? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, in in my career, we had complainants come in and, and, you know, they showed us what happened and they told us what happened. And, you know, looking at it, it's like, I I don't know if we have enough here to, you know, prove that this is a crime. And a lot of times it, it would mean taking those documents over to the United States Attorney's Office, to a federal prosecutor and, and asking them for their uh, prosecutorial opinion, whether or not there's a prosecutorial merit for, for this to uh, be an investigation, because you don't want to spend all your time investigating something if there's no way you're going to be able to prove that it's a crime. And I feel sorry for those people 
who, you know, may have signed a, a bad contract, but signing a bad contract is not the same as being defrauded. And sometimes, you know, you can tell right away that this is not a, a, a situation that the FBI is going to be able to investigate. Now, do you ultimately have to put a case together essentially to sell it to um, the Department of Justice to actually bring forth charges or am I off in my head? No, in some in some situations uh, that may occur that, you know, I think I got a great case and that I put together all the elements that uh, prove that this is this is a, a crime. And, you know, I might go into a federal prosecutor for whatever reason, you know, and what we call them AUSAs, an, an assistant United States attorney. And, you know, they don't think I have enough or, you know, they think there needs to be more or they don't think, you know, anything's there. Um, I have never had a case that I've worked where they turned it down. You know, I would just go, you know, I needed to get more evidence. I went out and got more evidence, but I don't want to waste my time either. So when, when I would open a case and, and start looking at it, you know, I would proceed because I thought, yeah, we got something here. Okay. But they do make the ultimate determination. Well, they're the prosecutors. So in that sense, you know, I can investigate everything I want to investigate, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, in court unless the prosecutor decides, you know, it's something they want to prosecute. So the FBI does not work for the U.S. Attorney's Office. We are investigators. We investigate the case, but we know to investigate the case and, and pull out the evidence and the elements of the case that is going to make it uh, profitable in the sense of, you know, wasting or using your time for a prosecutor now to take that into court. So it's not completely different than um, a city police department investigating for the district attorney. Yes, that, that, that would be a good analogy. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how, how was the, how did the FBI um, change over the course of your career? Well, you said you retired 10 years ago, so I would imagine 9-11 threw uh, something into it. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when I was an agent, and I joined the FBI in, in 1982, and most of uh, white-collar crime was very, very prevalent. I mean, it was something that the FBI did uh, because local police departments just didn't have the the time and the manpower. I could I could work a case for two to three years, you know, depending on what it was, uh, gathering information, you know, traveling overseas, traveling around the country to uh, you know interview people. You know, Did a you local. Say, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you do the some of the savings and loan stuff that was going on in the 80s? No, I I, I didn't. Uh, participate in that, but it was very close to the type of work that I did do. And uh, local departments just don't have the time, the manpower, or the money to do, you know, a complex investigation. I'm sure they're capable of doing it, but, you know, they're, they're more of a reactive, you know, there's crime happening and it needs to be dealt with. They don't have time or the luxury to, to really sit back. So that's the job of the FBI. And, and so cases like that, after 9-11, we continue to work them, but not at the same level. And, and, and that was kind of sad for me. I knew that the FBI needed to change, you know, instead of just being a law enforcement agency, you know, we, we, we took on the responsibility of also being intelligence driven. 
you know, trying to prevent a crime, not just investigate a crime after it, it occurred. And so a lot of the bodies, a lot of the focus shifted into terrorism. We had always been doing terrorism, but now we're doing at an, uh, at an even uh, uh, larger level. And so I saw some of those resources, you know, we, we might have had a three squads doing financial and economic crime. And now all of a sudden we're down to one squad and, and a lot of people calling in, you know, we knew that we were never going to be able to investigate their case because a lot of the resources went to terrorism and rightly so. Now I was thinking about it. Aren't the, isn't there a lot of financial involvement with the terrorism now? Yes. As a, as, yeah. As a matter of fact, I have an upcoming podcast interview with the uh, retired agent who actually, right after 9-11, stood up that new um, unit at headquarters for terrorist financing. I haven't talked to him yet. We've got that interview scheduled, but I'm looking forward to it because, again, with my interest in economic crime and, and sure. financial, I, I can't wait to hear how they go after terrorists you know, by tracking finances. Now, does that sound like fun to you? I, I think it does. I, I actually think all elements of crime are interesting. Good. Not always fun, but I could see that if I personally was in the FBI, I would probably rather deal with the financial because I don't want to say that it's obviously not victimless, but it's not as visceral. I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Um, the great thing about financial crime, and a lot of people don't understand this, for many of the organized crime groups, you know, like like uh, the mafia, the mob, sure. they were taken down, many of them, because we went after them, their finances. Uh, yeah. You know, they were taken. Yeah. So... Capone, not Pacino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Al Pacino's a good guy. He's okay. Yeah, I, I think that was an IRS case, but definitely that's the type of thing that we're talking about. And and you know, the FBI has been able to uh, dismantle many organizations by going after them, you know, financially. You know, uh, finding the crime, convicting them of the crime, and then with forfeiture. Uh, you know, taking all of their money, all of their property and leaving them with, you know, nothing. I got to push a little on that though, because forfeiture, that's one of those ugly ones where it's, it sometimes has been used or almost abused by different departments. Like, you know, taking everybody's stuff before they're actually convicted can be really ugly. Right. That doesn't happen in the federal system. In the federal system, uh, that that's like it's almost like um, you know after after the person is convicted, you know then there's a whole forfeiture uh, hearing or forfeiture trial where you have to prove uh, you know why this particular home or this particular bank account was part of the the scheme. Uh, but I did I have heard uh, situations um, in in local crimes where, you know, say a, a, a mother's son was selling drugs out of the house and, and now her house is forfeited. That doesn't really occur in the federal system. And it is sad to, to hear where, you know, parents are, um, you know, are, are penalized for the actions of, of, their, of their kids. 
I, I would almost argue that it's fraud going the other way. Uh, yeah. Because uh, there have been cases of it with some departments that have, um, shall we say, say, lived very well on it with some salaries and things that have come out. So yeah, that's always trouble. Yeah. I did a, a podcast interview and I can't think of the name of it. I think it was Tenahog police department and it was a a police department down in texas that was stopping motorists uh there was like a highway that went from mexico through texas that was known as a big drug highway and so Mm -hmm. they would stop people and if they found large amounts of money they would um seize that money and a lot of the times the people never came back, you know, to, to, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, they, this, you know, their money was seized. Uh, the case became an FBI case because the police department, uh, stole the money. Somebody in the police department was stealing, uh, the money, uh, that was being seized. And that became a police <laughs> corruption case. Oh, that's funny. Okay. So essentially the police department was stealing the money from people and there's somebody in the department stealing the money from, the- yes. <laughs> I, I love it. And the funny thing is that they probably reported it because, hey, somebody's taking our stuff, but their own activity was potentially extremely illegal. Right. Right. And so, you know, or they just were scared. You know, they just, you know, the, their money was seized. They were given a ticket to come back to the small town in Texas to go to court to prove that they're, you know, they had legitimate reason to have the money and they just continued on on their way and decided not, not to take the chance of, of returning. And so there were no court cases. Nobody was ever taken to court. This money was money and drugs, you know, was stacking up in this evidence room. And I guess one of the officers decided, you know, no one knows, you know, no one's (laughs) coming back to claim this and uh, decided to pocket some of it. But you know, it was discovered. They finally did an audit and it was discovered. It's a great case, uh, case review. I've got a lot of really great case reviews. I'm oh, having, no kidding. I'm having such a great time. So I've had a hundred and tonight I'll post my 139th case review with retired agents, you know, talking about some of the FBI's biggest cases like Oklahoma city bombing or the Unabomber or, um, Made Dahmer's off. recently. Yeah, I had I had a case agent on who spoke to Dahmer four times and interviewed him four times. So I have some big cases, but then I also have interviews with FBI agents for cases that you've never heard of that are also just as you know fascinating and, and interesting. Uh, I'm having such a great time because you know, as we mentioned, I worked economic crime most of my career. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did work drug cases. Uh, I did participate um, in uh, drug investigations because for four years I was assigned to our Cherry Hill office. Cherry Hill is in New Jersey, but the Philadelphia office has satellite offices throughout. Uh, Pennsylvania, and they have the one office in Cherry Hill covering three counties in South Jersey, where I actually live. And so while yeah. I, when I was in that office, you know, I would participate uh, in, in uh, arrests and searches that were, were made in South Jersey, especially in, in Camden, New Jersey, which at the time was considered one of the most violent cities in the United States. I imagine it's funny. I think the FBI would be extremely busy there because 
there's so much crime and they're all crossing state state lines. Yes. So the jurisdiction would like naturally fall to you. Yeah, absolutely. It it well, we're busy doing all kinds of things. There are, you know, there are people doing espionage cases and public corruption and, you know, drug investigations and cyber crime. There are just so many things. There's over 200 violations of federal crime that the FBI investigates. So, you know, there's always an opportunity to learn how to investigate all kinds of things and participate in that. All you need to do is raise your hand, even if you're on, you know, a squad that does white collar, if you really want to go out and, and, and hang out with the, you know, fugitive uh, squad, then, you know, you can do that too. So it's, it's, it's a great job. Do you have any collisions with um, other agencies like the CIA and jurisdictional problems, especially when you're talking espionage and things of that sort? It starts to get blurry, doesn't it? Well, not not when it comes to espionage, because it's very clear the FBI has the jurisdiction in the United States to investigate domestic counterintelligence. The CIA does not. The CIA is working overseas. They're like the United States spies, uh, but they do right. not investigate uh, espionage uh, cases uh, in the United States. That's the that's the FBI's uh, role. But the FBI also will go to embassies and things like that. Yes. Now, the uh, the FBI has what we call legal attache offices. So there is an FBI agent or an FBI present and presence in almost every country uh, overseas uh, where there's usually one to four or five agents who work out of the U.S. Embassy, but they don't actively work on investigations because we don't have the jurisdiction to go to another country and investigate. But we work hand in hand with the law enforcement and security agencies of that country in order to get our uh, investigative needs handled. So if somebody in California, you know, has a witness that lives in France and they want them interviewed, then they will send a a communication to our legal attache office in France. And then France will coordinate with the French police to have that person interviewed. Now, in many cases, there is no problem with the FBI agent accompanying the French police in order to, uh, you know, have that interview conducted. You know, sometimes they, the law enforcement agency uh, in that country wants to handle it on their own. But mm. there, are, you know, there are no FBI agents just running around foreign countries doing investigations, nor do we allow foreign uh, law enforcement agencies and security agencies to come here in our country and do investigations and, and make arrests and searches without you know, our coordination and handling of, of their request. Isn't there potentially other confusion too? For example, you're working financial crimes. Could you have an overlap with Secret Service? Oh yeah, there are many cases you know, that uh, the Secret Service has the same jurisdiction as we do. Um, so you know, sometimes we work together or sometimes you know, they get the case and you know, they're working it. But uh, it, there is a, a, a necessity for coordination but in many situations, the FBI is already working with these different uh, uh, federal agencies. For instance, since I worked financial crimes, I worked many of my cases with the United States Postal Inspection Service. You know, many of my cases, my, my partner was a postal inspector because we both did mail fraud. 
You know, we also, you know, the FBI also had jurisdiction over uh, wire fraud. So I had several cases. My big advance fee case, uh, the one that took me over to, to, to Spain, I worked with a postal inspector. And my big business-to-business uh, undercover case, I also worked with a postal inspector. But in many cases, I was working with a, an IRS agent, too. I, not to be silly or jaded, but... Are there too many agencies? I mean, I, I see here this overlap and I'm, I'm saying, why do we need these separate groups when you're working together anyway? Well, and I can tell you this, that there is so much crime out there that no, I don't think we, I don't well, think we have enough people working these crimes and, and everybody has their niche. So there are things like that the secret service is in charge of counterfeit uh, currency. You know, they're, they're, the FBI may participate in some way with them, but they have the lead jurisdiction when it comes to, you know, counterfeit currency. So, no, there's, there's there, there are set things that each agency does. And I, I know you're talking also about DEA. You know, they do drug investigations. Sure. The FBI does drug yeah. Uh, and same thing. You know, the FBI <laughs> is going to be involved in terrorism. We have our own bomb techs. And of course, the, the ATF is is handling also uh, explosive device and, and, and uh, right. devices. Yeah, there there is and IRS and ATF. They go against each other or overlap because of the alcohol and the tax mm-hmm. dice. And it- yeah, but you know what? It works out. I, I think one of the biggest and we haven't really talked about this yet because this this is the whole focus of what I do is sure. to um, to talk about the cliches and misconceptions about the FBI. And one of them is that we don't play well w- with other law enforcement agencies and federal agencies. And that is just so untrue. I mean, way before 9-11, we had task force, uh, task forces in our office where you may have a fugitive task force or a drug task force where we actually have police officers and U.S. marshals and state troopers and warrant officers working in our office. You know, they, their, their desk is, is, uh, that's where they come to work every day. The FBI pays them. They are a part of an FBI task force, and we work hand in hand, combining our manpower and our resources. And we've always done that. And now, of course, after 9-11, we have the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the JTTFs, <laughs> where, again, these agencies are working side by side. They're not just sharing information you know, from one agency to another. They're sharing information one agent to another because they're partnering up and, and we're investigating this uh, as, a, as a big team. Okay, so the, um, the very popular storyline of I'm the seasoned rugged cop and investigating this case and the FBI comes in and, and Bigfoots me is a trope. Oh, it is definitely a trope. And, you know, and the sad thing about it is that it's almost self perpetuating. So, you know, if for instance, a, a, a local police officer has never met an FBI agent and they watch Die Hard, <laughs> you know, where the <laughs> FBI agent came in and, and did just what you said, then, you know, they may start, you know, backing up and thinking, oh, God, here comes the FBI. And it's not, it's just not true. The FBI does not have a, 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 a local police department is not subordinate to the FBI. You know, there is not like a hierarchy where the FBI is in charge of our, you know, can rule local police departments. That's just not true. We're a federal agency and they're a local agency. And, you know, we, we, 
we each have our responsibilities. And so, you know, just the thought of an FBI agent trying to come in and take over just can't happen because we don't even have, you know, that, uh, that jurisdiction or that ability. Uh, and many situations, people don't understand that if we were working with a local agency, maybe on a fugitive matter or, or, uh, or a murder, once that case has been solved and we know who the murderer is or the kidnapper is, you know, or the, you know, we've caught the fugitive, a lot of that time he's prosecuted in state court. And the FBI agent goes and, and sits and testifies and provides all the evidence. But, you know, there's always a decision in those type of cases, whether or not it's going to be uh, prosecuted federally or in, in state court. And, and that happens all the time. Well, and there's probably good reasons for that, too. Um, like it was handy to prosecute Ted Bundy in Florida where he could be executed. And a lot of times the type of sentence that you get in a federal crime is going to be stiffer. But let's uh, let's take an example of a kidnapping where the FBI may be the the lead agency in this kidnapping, uh, working with local law enforcement. The assumption is that we can work that kidnapping because that person may have been taken over state lines. But at Mm. the end, it's resolved. And the person was actually, you know, hidden in uh you know, an underground bunker just, you know, in the next county. Well, then mm-hmm. they're at that point, uh, that returned to a state matter. You know, there is no inter- interstate uh, connection. That victim was not taken across state line, but the FBI has investigated that case and has the evidence and has talked to, you know, the witnesses and, and, and done, you know, a good part of the work. Well, then it would be, prosecuted in state court, but the FBI agents would testify and, and, and work side by side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That happens all the time. And it's just so irritating to, to, to see that trope of the, of the FBI walking in and taking over because that doesn't work. (laughs) I guess it's drama. Um, Uh, Yeah. It creates a tension. Uh, It creates that tension and, and suspense that people are looking for. Cause you know, I, I, I do write crime, uh, crime novels now. And, and so I know the need to, you know, make it the story exciting and to have an exciting and inciting incident. But I can do that without making up, (laughs) you know, some, some false uh, connection or interaction between agencies. Yeah, I actually read the um, first one on Audible. Okay. You need to you need to get a narrator for your second one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll work on it. Yeah, Pay to Play uh, was actually inspired by by a true case here in Philadelphia. So there was a law uh, a, uh, a um, licensing and inspection uh, commissioner who did go into strip clubs and take bribes and, and take all kinds of freebies, you know, for In turning. City? Shocking. Yes. Shocking. And there were actually two very attractive female FBI agents who investigated that case. And, and as I was talking to them, as they were doing the investigation, I thought to myself, I've always wanted to write a crime novel. And this mm. is the case. So I said to them, are you ever going to write a book about this? And they said, no. <laughs> and I said, well, can I? And I actually got the chance to sit down with them and go over all the newspaper articles. And so the book was inspired, pay to play was inspired by the case. But of course, I added all kinds of, you know, 
characters and and compromising. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to go into that because um, there was a, a bit more depth to it than I expected. It wasn't just a straight out crime book. I think you're underselling it, actually. Oh, um, thank you. I would argue there's actually more of a character study. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, questionable actions taken by most characters. And I'd say the separation of of who could be considered good or bad was based on intent. Yes. Yeah, I I totally agree. When I wrote the book, I knew that some people who were looking for the FBI to be totally white hat, you know, totally straight, totally pure, totally the good guy might not like this book. But luckily, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the reviews on on Amazon, but, you know, they're mostly, I think there's 77 or 76 reviews and, and uh, with the exception of maybe, you know, two or three, they're all great reviews that people really enjoy the story because uh, it's different. You know, the, my, yeah, my female FBI agent has some flaws, some serious flaws, but I think people understand those and they forgive her because, uh, you know, they once I introduce her background and 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 the baggage that she was carrying around and what happens when she starts investigating the strip club case and how those that baggage and how you know that stuff from her past comes forward, especially with the me too me too movement and people talking about um, uh, you know sexual uh, assaults. I, I think they're pretty understanding of what makes her do the things that she does. Sure. Sure. And well, you, you say that. Sure. So you didn't like, did you like her? No, I do like her. I, okay. I, I'm, I'm trying to think if that's, I, I would empower her even more oh, that she's making decisions and yes, she's influenced by her past. But she is also making her own mistakes, but she's also owning her mistakes, but she's hiding her mistakes. There's a lot there's a lot more complexity there than just saying, oh, I'm a victim. Woe is me. Oh, yeah. And she's very well realized character. So I, I just feel like you're, again, underselling her slightly because she has challenges and some of these are brought on by herself. Yes, and, and, and her male counter and her, and her male counterpart too, um, her, oh, sure. her partner, especially in that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it, this is actually a series. So in in book two, you know, she continues to look at what she's done and trying to. Um, the, there's that area of redemption where she's looking at how how to to face what she's done, you know, both as an agent and as a wife. Um, I, I'm, I'm really, really pleased with, with book two, which is called Greedy Givers. And, cool. and the, the funny thing is that pay to play has profanity and sex. And it greed, it's, well, it's all about sexuality. Right. And Greedy Givers is the, is the second book in the series, but there is no sex, very little profanity, and I give you Bible scripture. 
Okay, so she was redeemed. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, but her the um, the villain in book two is a person uh, was a fundraiser for a charity. Uh, he was a charity fundraiser, and uh, he creates this uh, Ponzi scheme, or does he? You know that has uh, taken uh, money from donors, philanthropists, and, and individual donors to the tune of $350 million. And so when his foundation fails and uh, files for bankruptcy, it's a question of whether or not this is a Ponzi scheme or, you know, what was this person that has been known to be a giver and worked with nonprofits for all of his adult life? You know, what happened in this situation? And one of his gifts is the ability to be able to remember passages from the Bible, and when he mm -hmm. meets somebody, provide them with a passage that fits perfectly for what they're going through in their life. And so, as you can see, here, here, here you have my female FBI character who has all these flaws and has done this terrible thing, and she meets this character who... She has the she, vulnerability. Yeah, she kind of she, she sees that or feels that, yeah, he, he does know what I'm going through. How is that possible? So I'm really pleased with the book. I'm really pleased, you know, that I, um, I'm not a big Bible reader, but I was able to find, I think some, some great passages that really work for the, for the character and for the storyline. Um, and I'm can't wait to get started on book three, which is, uh, so I have pay to play greedy givers and book three is spoiled spenders. And uh, okay. yeah, so I'm I'm, Very nice. I'm really I'm really really excited about the series. But my next book is nonfiction, and well, you've got material built up. Yeah, so the next book is going to be uh, basically my podcast. And again, the podcast is FBI Retired Case File Review. And I, you know, I talk to retired agents about their cases. And almost every time we're in interviews, and all my interviews are at least an hour, if not an hour and a half long, because I want to give enough time to, to go through the whole phases of the investigation. But so many times we're talking about a particular case, and one of us says, yeah, that's not the way they have it on TV, or it's not like it is in, <laughs> in crime books. And so I came up with 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV and movies. And I did podcast episodes just on those on episodes uh, 50 and 100. And so now what I'm taking is I'm taking those cliches and misconceptions, you know, that, that uh, list of 20 and I'm combining them with, you know, quotes from the different agents that I've talked to who've oh, had nice. movies and TV shows written uh, around their their careers. And uh, I'm also reviewing uh, different TV shows and movies, and I'm combining it into a book. And really, I haven't announced to everyone yet what the name of the book is because I, I utilize my reader team, uh, people from my um, my podcast who have joined my reader team to kind of uh, decide on the title and I'm going to announce it next week, but I'm going to give you a scoop. And the name oh, of the, <laughs> the name of the book is the FBI in film and fiction. Hmm. Uh, I, the, the, the subtitle is a training manual for armchair investigators. Oh, I like that. Yeah? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that definitely works. And, yeah. I do want to dwell for a minute and wrap up on the podcast because 
what I think you were doing, you're having fun and that's great, but you're actually, you're capturing history and that's important. Yeah. I do call it, yeah, I do call it a true crime history podcast now because I realize that. And, and that's really huge, especially because you're talking about retired agents. The gentleman you talked to about Dahmer, he's not young. He can't be because Dahmer is all the way back in the eighties and early nineties. And, um, you did, um, somebody with Carlos, the terrorist, which I have to get into. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just barely catching up, but I remember Carlos, um, uh, from way back in the day. And then Robert Ludlum, there's a tie in and you can tie, get a parallel there, which is interesting. But I think that I hope you keep doing this and keep this resource out there especially for the agents who haven't had books written about their cases. Yeah, because absolutely. Yeah. I, I think about, um, actually it was the same gentleman who was talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. He talked about a, um, a particularly cruel individual who murdered a baby. Ugh, and I cried, I looked it up and there was one article about it. Just one scant article. And it's the most horrible thing you've ever heard. And the only reference to this horrible act is one basic article that the jury was out for three hours. Wow. Which seems to be, now maybe there's more out there if I really, really start digging, but just going by the names and doing a Google search and all that, boo, there's scant anything. But now you've actually captured this on record. And I'm sure that there's other cases where you have captured more visceral details that elevate what may be overlooked or forgotten. Yeah. It, you know, the funny thing was when I started the podcast and I've told everybody, you know, this many, many times is that I started the podcast in order to build a platform for readers. You know, I knew mm. I was going to have a book coming out nine months later. And so in January, I started the podcast thinking, okay, let me, let me find my audience of people who are interested in stories about the FBI. And, you know, that's what I began. And I began calling my friends and then reaching out to case agents of some of the bigger cases. And it just grew and grew and grew. And then, and was that October? I think it was. My book came out in, in September and October of 2016. We all know what happened. You know, Director Comey had his press conference and all of a sudden the FBI was catapulted into the political scene. Uh, and, and people, that's when people started talking about the FBI and very unflattering ways about integrity and independence. And that's when the podcast became a mission. And hmm. to the point that I've just recognized that my writing uh, took a, a, a huge backseat. The, the podcast is very popular. I'm, you know, like your show and, you know, on the, on the top charts and top charts and, and, and iTunes. And, uh, I've been very proud that the podcast has, has reached an audience like that, you know, international audience, but I mm -hmm. kind of put my book writing, uh, in the background. And so I'm going to, I'm going to rectify that in, in 2019, hopefully, you know, that the podcast will continue. It will always continue as long as I can find agents to come on, but I will be working more for, uh, for what I love the most, which is, uh, writing crime, crime novels, but back to the podcast, it is a mission now. And I really 
you know, I'm seeking out some of those agents that, as you said, don't have books and that I really would like to get their take on different uh, cases uh, recorded. Um, Definitely. They're the soldiers. And mm -hmm. and I, I, I think what we've run into because I'm not impressed with some of Comey's actions personally, but I'm not going to hold the FBI agent accountable for that because he's a politician. Comey is a politician. When you get high up in the ranks, just like I'm, I was in the military, these generals are politicians. I don't care how you break it down. In order to climb that high up, you are a politician. But how that general act says nothing about the sergeant who's out there with the platoon. And I imagine that's kind of what you are feeling now is, wait a minute, not every FBI agent was J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was a scumbag. Most people would agree. But the agents <laughs> who were doing the job and stopping the crime were doing their job and stopping crime. Well, I, I guess I'm, I'm required to defend J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, he did do some things that were definitely uh, questionable and, and might even have been criminal. But I have okay. to, but I have to say, uh, I, I don't have any pictures. I don't, I don't keep his picture anywhere near uh, in, in my office. But the 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 way that the FBI has grown as a law enforcement agency, you know, the the respect that we have all over the world the uh the things that we had the tried and true procedures that we have in place were created by j edgar hoover so i'm going to give him okay. some credit for that you know well, and fair enough and you absolutely can and oh yeah when it, i mean he's not one of my favorites either when it comes to <laughs> race relations and martin luther king uh definitely yes. he is he is he i i'm not going to put him on you know uh, on overstein is welcome or right right but I, now, I for establishing an agency and getting yes. it off of the ground, yes, and being an organizer and putting together the organization, phenomenal, yes. And Howard Hughes was a genius too, who went nuts. So <laughs> totally agree, <laughs> totally agree. But I, I, I found it necessary <laughs> to to defend him at, at at some point. But you know, one of the great things, uh, like one of the podcast episodes I have, is with the case agent for Watergate. Now he's in oh his eighties and he never wrote a book. He, you know, very seldom did interviews. And so to have Angelo Lano on my podcast talking for wow. an hour and a half and, you know, was, was fantastic. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of cases that, uh, the case that I have now that that's being posted, uh, uh episodes 138 and 139, you know, are with two case agents on a, corruption case. It was a Cleveland Police Department corruption mm. case. And one was the case agent and one was the undercover agent. And it was a fantastic case where they convicted 30, 30 Cleveland police officers for taking bribes. And that case has never, they've never spoken about that case in public. They've never written a book. You know, they've never had a presentation. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm really proud to, to have them on the podcast, you know, sharing how they did this case. It's uh, I'm, I'm having a great time and I'm really feeling um, I told you that I told you when we first started how I like to correct memorabilia. 
you know, how I've collected all of this stuff from my past. And so collecting these case reviews uh, is just an extension of that. <laughs> what a perfect way to wrap it up. And I have to say, I like you very much, but I'm kind of annoyed with you because now you're going to eat up a bunch of my spare time. <laughs> I have to, I have to study. Uh, catch, catch up with the backlist. It's all there waiting for you. Uh, oh, my goodness. I'm going to have no time left. Wait. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. Uh, I, it's my pleasure. Again, I'm trying to get the, the message out to people about who the FBI is and what the FBI does. And you can find all of that on my podcast, FBI Retired Case File Review. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to Mr. A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. Introducing the diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before it, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network.